And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. What book has taught Brian Stewart more about war than anything else? You asked many times, actually. Today, he answers. Welcome to Tuesday, and Tuesdays, as it has been almost throughout this year, has been an opportunity for my friend, your friend, Brian Stewart, to talk about the situation in Ukraine as it relates to the Russian invasion in February, and has been a constant story throughout this year. Well, Brian is with us again today, and one of the things about these last few months, as Brian's Tuesday commentary has become increasingly popular among many of you who are trying to understand this conflict and the fallout from it. One of the constant questions has been, why does he know so much? Well, as I've mentioned before, he's one of the most experienced war correspondents, foreign correspondents of our time. Just in terms of covering conflicts, and I'm probably going to miss a few out here. I'm, I'm just going from my own memory, having worked with him um, on some of these on location, but most of them, uh, you know, from a distance from the studio in Toronto where I'd be, and he'd be out there in the field. Um, but Brian covered the Falklands War in 1982, and he was covered it from both London and from uh, Buenos Aires um in argentina so he you know <laughs> covered a lot of ground or sea as you might say uh in that conflict um lebanon in the mid 80s the civil war in lebanon in you know one of certainly the mediterranean's most beautiful cities devastated both its people and its uh, infrastructure by the uh, war in lebanon uh, brian was there covering that. Bosnia, the first Gulf War in the early 90s, the second Gulf War as a result of uh, 9-11. He was in Afghanistan. Uh, he's covered natural disasters, which are a conflict in their self. He was one of the first reporters to tell us about the 1984 famine in Ethiopia. His, his re reportage went worldwide on that one and uh, led in many ways to the um, uh, the 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 world reaction to Ethiopia and how people and countries got together to uh, to help. Uh, he covered the tsunami and the um, uh, what year was that? Two thousand four. It was right late in the year in two thousand four. So the uh, impact of it uh, flowed also into and I'm sorry to use that word uh, into um, two thousand and five. So. <laughs> He's got the cred. Um, but it's more than just having experienced it on the ground. It's being a student of conflict and war, uh, which Brian has been. And part of that obligation of being a student is to read. And it's been interesting in the last what, little while, the number of letters I've received by, from people who, I guess the question boiled down to this, if Brian Stewart could name one book, that's taught him more about war, conflict, what would that big book be? Uh, and so that's, you know, 
the way we decided to uh, to start things off in our conversation today, as well as move into the nitty-gritty of what's happening in Ukraine right now. So uh, enough from me. Let's get to our conversation, uh, our conversation with Brian Stewart. So, Brian, they continue to write in wanting to ask questions. They never ask me any questions, but there's every week there's like questions for Brian, questions for Mr. Stewart. And uh, so I've got three, three questions for you here uh, this time, and we'll do it uh, well, we'll do it quickly because we still have other issues to talk about. Um, the first one is one I mentioned last week uh, on the air. Somebody wrote in and said, what's Brian Stewart's favorite book on war that teaches him uh, an understanding of conflict? Boy, that's a hard choice, Peter, but I would go right back to uh, when I was 20 in 1962 when The Guns of August came out by Barbara Tuckman. It, it was perhaps the most influential history book of its time. It was about the disastrous diplomacy that led to the First World War and that first disastrous, chaotic first month of war. And it was so influential that uh, President Kennedy used it throughout the Cuban Missile Crisis to sort of brief his cabinet members on and the rest of it, how not to fall into a trap like that again. I think it's a book that everybody should read every now and then, just to remind oneself that wars can come about by absolute carelessness and uh, a lack of understanding what's involved. And, And Barbara Tuckman's book was not only a brilliant book in that sense, but it was wonderfully well written. And clearly stands the test of time. Oh my gosh, yes, it really is. Uh, I think uh, Margaret McMillan, Canada's great historian, said of it that when she read it in 1963, uh, history turned from black and white to color. And I think that I had had that same effect on me and a lot of my generations. I read for the first time uh, the First World War that wasn't seen in flickering black and white film, but was actually in vivid color and made uh, decisions made by very human people who made terrible mistakes and very human people who sometimes were absolutely brilliant. It was an amazing human drama. Um, next question uh, involves the uh, Wagner or the Wagner mercenary group. You mentioned this uh, last week or the week before uh, on the bridge uh, in terms of the impact of it. Tell us a little more about this group. Well, it's kind of like a, it's a private mercenary army unlike any others. You'd almost have to go back to the Pirates of the Caribbean to find anything quite like it. It is, it is a, a Russian private army set up by a former chief caterer, if you can believe it, to the the Kremlin, uh, a friend of uh, Putin's, and it is uh, roughly about 1,500 strong, about a a battalion, sorry, a brigade strong, and it it is fought in many areas of the world where Russia wants dirty things done and effective things done, it is fought in Syria, Liberty, Libya, sorry, the Central African Republic and Mali. And of course, now it's been fighting very hard in, in Ukraine. It fights on the Eastern Front. It's made up of, well, paid 
soldiers who aren't in any kind of legal entity. So if they're killed, it doesn't show up as Russian casualty figures. It is a mysterious ghost-like force. And for reasons that no military analyst can quite understand, it is hammering its head over and over and over again, uh, trying to take parts of the Eastern Front to try and give a victory to uh, to Putin. It's believed that uh, it, it is there to gain as much influence as it possibly can and will have huge influence in the Kremlin in future. It's so popular in the sense of... Um, uh, uh, private armies that several others are trying to spring up to to compete with it. One very important thing to note, though, it, it does a lot of its recruiting right in the prisons. It goes into prisons. It goes after particularly uh, robbers and murderers. Uh, it likes to. It's got thousands of those apparently signed up. Uh, certain crimes it won't uh, sign, but those that will sign, they're given an option. Guys facing maybe fifteen years in the slammer can get uh, do six months in um, Ukraine. They will be paid a decent wage. And at the end of it, they'll get a full parole. And if you wonder why the UN and other human rights organizations uh, are constantly finding horrible crimes committed by the Wagner group, these soldiers, these mysterious soldiers, that's why they're a, they're a criminalized group Reminds some of the uh, during the Second World War, Hitler had a particularly Waffen SS Derlewanger Brigade, which was made up entirely of of criminals, and they did some of the worst, most vile things that are almost possible to read about uh, nowadays. Uh, and the Wagner Group, frankly, isn't far off that level of of. Uh, of savagery, frankly, uh, if you could put it into a, in a war context. Okay. Um, last question, uh, and I've had a number of versions of this over the last couple of days, people writing in saying, ask Brian about this prisoner swap for uh, um, the American base, uh, basketball star, uh, and was it uh, one that will be shown to be to the advantage of the Russians. The Russians got uh, this fellow named Boot for Griner, the American basketball player. And Boot is, um, you know, he's an arms dealer um, and a very, uh, you know, well-known one in terms of world arms dealings. Um, And the fear upon the part of some of these letter writers is the Russians are getting back exactly what they need, somebody who can get arms for them. Uh, in their their struggle against uh, Ukraine, uh, so is it that cut and dry, or is boot uh, is boot a thing of the past? Well, you will get a lot of Americans, and not just Republicans, but also Democrats, and a lot of diplomats uh, who will say that it was a very bad deal, uh, basically to trade uh, uh, a basketball star uh, Whitney Griner, who'd been in prison for 10 months for somebody who was the most notorious arms dealer in the world, who had dealt arms to terrorist groups that were specifically targeting Americans to kill in places like Colombia. Uh, and just, that's all you get. Um, 
you know, when when the Americans had originally started trying to deal in Paul Whelan, who's a U.S. Marine, who's been four years in a Russian prison, a very miserable prison. He's been four years. The Americans are uh, keep insisting he's completely innocent of any espionage charges, which he's held under. And to have just got one person instead of the two seems a bad deal. Now, the administration on its side will say, no, no, we didn't have a choice of two. Uh, that was in our dreams, maybe, but that we only could do one-on-one. And we don't have anybody else we can trade to the, the Russians to get Paul Whelan back. They keep going mentioning this guy, Vadim Kresilov, who's a assassin, who's in, in a German jail. He has nothing to do with our custody. But the Russians say, we really want this guy back. He's been in jail four years now after after literally killing a Chechen uh, activist in a, a Berlin, I think a Berlin Park, I believe it was. And now he's in jail and the Russians say we want him back, whatever happens. So it's, it's a mess in some respects. A lot of Republicans are saying, well, Biden was obviously going out and checking all the political boxes, what would be popular at home. But we're insisting it's it's a poor deal. We should have got much more than we did get. And uh, it's up in the air. It's a really difficult situation as Canada has learned to its its own peril, uh, dealing for um, basically hostages. You know, I, I heard one of the American networks this morning using Canada as the example of how delicate, difficult, and on the knife's edge some of these negotiations could be because of um, Canada's most recent experience with the two uh, the two Michaels. Uh, all right, let's get to um, uh, some of the issues of uh, of the day beyond those questions. And you know, as I mentioned last week. Um, Brian sends me some ideas each week of things that he'd like to talk about. Uh, and I love this because this, this is the first one. I'm just going to read. I'm going to read what you wrote me in the first sentence because it's a great description. Pity the poor diplomats trying to make sense of Moscow's latest statements on the Ukraine war, which often seem a flurry of contradictions. Talk about that. Well, so they do, you know, last at one stage last week, um, Putin came out and said, you know, we're not mad. We know what nuclear weapons are as if we're we're not going to use them. You know, we're not going to use them. And there was a huge sigh of relief, especially coming, I think, from Germany and uh, its leader Schultz, who said uh, that he thought that nuclear weapons were off the table now. We didn't have to worry about them. The next I think it was the next day Putin is back saying, well, on the other hand, we're going to drop the no first use clause in our Constitution and we'll be able to use nuclear weapons for the uh, be the first to use them whenever we feel that Russian territory is really uh, existentially threatened. So in 24 hours, you flip-flop. The same week, he says at one stage... We're open to talks, and he, he looked very much like he was ready to sit down and start talking. The next day, he says, actually, we're preparing for a very long war indeed. And so the I mean, the European diplomats are saying, oh, no, not a long war. That's almost worse than a nuclear exchange because, you know, this is going to go on and on and on. So it's, it's becoming very hard to... Uh, 
to predict what he's going to do. And I, I when I when I heard about the talk about the long war, I put it down to that old political saying that the British always had, which is he would say that, wouldn't he? I mean, if you want to really upset your enemies and make them really start wondering, should we go on supporting Ukraine? Should we go on pouring all this money and weapon is? What you want to do is not talk about, let's sit down and negotiate an end as soon as possible to this war. What you want to start talking about is this is going to be a very long war and you better have very deep pockets and very strong uh, ability to withstand cold and misery because you're going to get all of that. So I think it was a bit of play acting on on Putin's charge, but he's now flip-flopping his positions every single day. And today he declared he wasn't going to have his, his annual press conference, a very major event in his year. Like he, he sits down and talks for four hours sometimes in his press conferences. Now he's not going to have them. I always think that any politician who's suddenly canceling his press conference has a problem. Well, he's clearly had a problem throughout the year, but it still leaves, uh, you know, a, a lot of people wondering, and I think both of us wondering at times, as whether he's falling apart or getting unhinged or whether he's too smart by half with some of these contradictory statements. Well, I think he's, yeah, I think he's he's basically trying to shore up all of support he can get in Russia because they're having some alarming signs now that the, the Russians are very quietly starting to say enough of this. 55% in a poll that the Kremlin actually ran, 55% say they favored peace talks over only 25% uh, who said uh, they wanted to prolong war. And uh, he's, he, he's in a, a bit of a bind because we don't really spend all that much time thinking about the Russian economy, though it is absolutely a central part of the of this war. It's one of the key fronts. And he's been getting some very alarming signs from uh, from top economists in Russia, including Elvira Nabi Ulyana, who is chairwoman of the Central Bank, who recently uh, sent messages to the Duma, which is their parliament, saying that, you know, this, this you can't call it a war in Russia. You have to call it a military operation this it needs to be approached very soberly very soberly indeed in fact there has to be a fundamental restructuring of the russian society because it is now gutting so much out of our normal practices it's taking away all of our kind of consumer economy and more and more of it's going into a kind of a war economy which is what it is the defense to budget in russia which is quite startling is jumping up 35% in one year from 63 billion US to about 90 billion, somewhere around that area. Uh, 90 billion for, for a country that basically its GDP is smaller than Russia, Canada, sorry, uh, is, is no bigger than Canada's, is it, pretty startling. And then on top of that, for internal security, they're adding another 46 billion. They're increasing by half. Uh, all the internal securities they have, 400,000 National Guard, intelligence units, secret police, all of them uh, are bringing the total spending on defense and internal security up to $130 billion. And that's taking away more and more the regular economy. People are starting to find it hard to get their the clothes they wanted now because they're being turned into army gear and factories are doing double and triple shifts. 
trying to turn out enough uh, ammunition and uh, other munitions that can be used in the war in Ukraine and having a hard time keeping up. Uh, their GDP has declined 7% since the sanctions had full force. This is not a pretty picture. So all the, no matter how isolated the people in the Kremlin are and how much of a bubble they are, they, they can't help noticing that when paper crosses their desks now, it's, it's, it's talking about a huge number of human casualties in the war and a vast, almost unbelievable amount of damage and equipment and, and munitions. And then on top of that, a, a budget that has to be approached very soberly, which in Moscow probably has a double meaning. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's really a very, very serious run up. So I think that Putin is somebody who's, I don't think he's flailing around. He's not the kind of guy to flail. He's pretty cold, cool, calculating uh, person, so we are led to believe. But he's also hearing from the Chinese and from the Indians that they don't like this war at all, and they want it ended as soon as possible. The Turks near his border are also saying they want it ended as soon as possible. Very few friends in the world, only Iran, really. And uh, really, nothing is going very well for them on the battlefield or frankly at home right now. And Iran's probably a friend because they're making money out of the uh, well, exactly. out of the war by selling weapons to uh, Russia. Okay, now, um, you, know, you you pointed out how, how Russia has changed its tune on some key points here in the last little while, but as you point out in your note to me, so the Americans have been changing uh, their tune as well on some key areas. Well, one key area in particular, uh, I'm sure your listeners will have noticed that uh, recently there's been a number of quite dramatic attacks inside Russia itself, well inside Russia itself, 300, 400, 500 kilometers inside. In fact, in four days, two major fires broke out at shopping uh, plazas uh, near right very close to Moscow, in the suburbs of Moscow, essentially. Uh, This, uh, you know, when asked about it, the Ukrainians always say, well, you know, the Russians have this smoking problem. They're always smoking carelessly. That's what's causing all these fires to break out. But in actual fact, there's there's clearly attacks going on inside Russia uh, by Ukrainians. And they appear to be using uh, old Ukrainian, uh, sort of Soviet era, I should say, not Ukrainian. They were actually Russian era, but Soviet and Ukrainian era um, uh, drones uh, of a particular sort. And they're using them to fly in, apparently, though some military analysts are also convinced they're using their staging guerrilla attacks inside the country um, because they are able to pass through Russia, speaking Russian very easily. Uh, they're, they're a real threat inside there as well. So the Americans have come out. <laughs> And they've been saying all along, we don't want you firing weapons inside Russia. We don't want you uh, hitting inside Russia because that would escalate the war. That would bring the dangers of the war closer to us all all this the time. Well, whether the Americans have had a, a, a change of thought on that and think, well, you know, frankly, the, Amer- the Russians have escalated all they're prepared to do anyways – that's what they're doing now. Or they're beginning to think there's no way to really hold the Ukrainians back, given the hammering they're getting day after day uh, from the air, drones and rockets and 
cruise missiles and the rest of it. We can't really hold them back. So the Americans have now started, if you could believe the UK Times, to be saying to the Ukrainians, well, okay, we, we're not going to forbid you to use weapons as long as you don't use our weapons. We don't want you using NATO weapons. Don't be using our cannons to fire into Russian territory. But if you have drones or old missiles or crews or any kind of missiles from the Soviet era that you made yourself or the, the Russians made, you can certainly be using it. And that's probably what they're doing right now, which means a very big deal because Russia is a very target-rich country. It has masses of targets. It's uh, targets itself that are just sitting there. You know, power lines, uh, fuel lines, water lines, railways, bridges, all of that. The infrastructure, and uh, those are open to attack. And I think the Ukrainians will be attacking much more if the if the Russians continue to try and escalate these air attacks. Um, and I, I think that's that's a dangerous way the war is going, but I don't see why the Ukrainians would hold back, quite frankly, given they've got that stuff. The Americans have made one other condition I should mention, and that is whatever the attack is in Russia, it has to be uh, run by the rules of war or the Geneva Convention. In other words, no assassinations and, and no attacking the civilians per se. You can go after infrastructure but you're not supposed to be going after civilians in the way that Russia is now going after them to the outrage of the UN and other human rights uh, observers. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but I've got another question for you, and I'll get to it right after this. Welcome back. You're listening to The Bridge right here on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. And remember, Tuesday, uh, sorry, Wednesdays and Fridays. Uh, we're also on our YouTube channel. You can find how to get to that by looking at my uh, profile on either Instagram or Twitter. I'll take you right there. There's no fee, no subscription fee. You can watch uh, the Bridge in production on Wednesdays and Fridays. Okay, we're back with Brian Stewart, uh, Brian's last commentary uh, for this year, 2022. And I guess that's what I want to get around to on, in terms of my question. I mean, I don't think we started the year thinking we were going to be looking at a prolonged uh, conflict in Ukraine after a Russian invasion. There was certainly talk of a Russian invasion uh, as the year began, but most people at that time, as we well know, thought if they did do it, it would only last a couple of days and it'd be all over. Here we are at the end of 2022. It's still very much ongoing, or at times it seems stepped up um, uh, from uh, from the earlier days, the conflict now spreading, as Brian just outlined in terms of inside Russia. Um, now, I want you to put your uh, your sort of thinking cap, predicting cap on and look into the future. It seems now generally accepted that this we're, we're looking at a prolonged conflict, that this could last not weeks or months, but uh, more years. Um, what are you thinking on that front, uh, first of all, in terms of length? And secondly, what are you thinking in terms of the significance of this war 
as it plays out uh, in front of it, at times an astonished world at, at what it's seeing, but in a world that's involved on many levels in terms of uh, support for Ukraine? Well, I've thought for a long time there was going to be a very major uh, cycle of conflict in the spring after the winter's over. Uh, I'm changing my mind a little bit on that because I think the the Ukrainians are going to be attacking as soon as the ground is firm enough to handle their tanks and armor vehicles and the rest of it. They want to. They absolutely have to. They feel keep the momentum up to get keep Western support up. So that is that is my first prediction we will see some uh, offensives beginning in the next two maybe three weeks but there will be very major battles in the spring if there's one thing that disturbs my thinking about that and makes me wonder is you know the, the ukrainians are being asked to take an awful lot this is really murderous kind of attacks because the temperatures there will go well below freezing. This is a civilian population that doesn't have the best health to begin with. Um, and it's it's worn down, it's weary. I think we could be watching, looking at an enormous loss of life and the hundreds of thousands potentially. Some, some health officials are, are warning us that when you don't have heating, when you have people crammed into one or two rooms where there's there is the only possibility for heating where this goes on you you could get uh ukraine becoming very frayed but their their morale is so high their courage is so strong uh it's just impossible to count them out therefore i do think there will be a major fighting in the new year unless putin does one more giant flip-flop of all flops and then it goes for a peace agreement which is impossible for anyone to predict right now in terms of its its meaning for our time i really put it up there with kind of munich 1938 or, or 39 i think that that this is an instance where the rule of law, if it means anything at all, if it, 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 it certainly in the Central Europe, has to mean that Russia just can't desire to rebuild its great imperial vision of itself when it sees fit by attacking neighbors. And the stand has to be taken. The stand has been taken by one country. Uh, the rest of us are all supporting it to some extent, but it's a, you know it's a safe support we're, we're giving them. Uh, I think we can't lower the we can't lower this to a, a debate between just real politicians. What what's real politic here? Forget the emotions. Forget the the, the 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 principles at stake. This is a very principled war. The Ukrainians, I think, are fighting for their own liberty against uh, an imperial uh, master. It's known in the past, and I think that's going to keep them going even beyond a point where most people would be looking for ways to get out of the war. And I think. Th- that's going to keep us pretty much supporting them because I don't see how we can conceivably walk away from that. So it is a long war, not just for the Ukrainians and the Russians, but really for all of us. And, you know, the Ukrainians use a good line when they, when they're talking about what they're fighting for, uh, because what they say, and increasingly have been saying it lately when they, when they worry about, uh, you know, breaks within the uh, alliance of countries that have been supporting them, they say, we're not just fighting for our liberty. We're fighting for yours, too. Uh, you know, we're the front line of this fight. 
um, uh, against Russia and against uh, autocracy. Um, and that's why you have to support us. And, you know, okay, I, I found this on the web for they say we are not just fighting for our liberty. We are fighting for yours. Do you know where the front line of this fight against Russia and against autocracy? Check it out. Thank you. Thank you, Siri. Isn't it amazing how they interrupt our conversations? You're making a good point, too, so (laughs) you remake it. Yeah, well, I I mean, you know, I've made it. You know, I'll uh, I'll let Siri speak for herself. But but I think the, uh, you know, it's no surprise that the Ukrainians are saying that. Um, uh, and it's it seems to be having an impact, although there, clearly there's some Republicans in the states and perhaps some in France and Germany who are, are ready to back off a bit. Yeah, I think they are. It's well to remember that historically long wars are, tend to be long because when people, one side or another or both, uh, are, are fired by principle and vision. And and the the Russians are fired by, I think, a very evil desire to get back an empire which is questionable to begin with, and the Ukrainians are fired by a real vision of freedom and and standing up and being free forever of that kind of boot on the neck, you know, that iron boots stamping on the neck, um, and I think that that's makes it very hard to call a war off. Um, you know, when, when, despite the threats, the hardships and all the rest, and it makes it extraordinarily hard for something like NATO and the European Union to say, oh, well, you know, we've done pretty well our bit. We've given you a lot of weapons. We can't really help out much more. Um, you know, we, we haven't even confronted the real, ch- not the real challenge, well, a major challenge here, which is the whole finances of Ukraine. Ukraine needs to be you know, we're going to need a, a trillion dollars to repair and rebuild itself. All of that is going to be needed. And, and, and every, you know, people are quite welcome to run around looking for diplomatic breakthroughs. And if they find it all well and good, but I don't think they're going to find it anytime soon. And if you don't, and you haven't found it, then at least get behind the main effort that is underway for basically all of us. All right, we're going to uh, we're going to call it a year on the, <laughs> on this conversation, Brian, and uh, we're okay. all be- we're all better for it. Um, so we're going to take uh, the next uh, couple of weeks are going to be uh, a bit of a break for everybody, um, but uh, we will see you again in the first week of January. Who knows what will have happened on this story by then? Uh, but we we do know that you'll be able to bring us up to date. So Brian Stewart, thank you as always, my friend. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Brian Stewart with us. And wasn't that something at the end, near the end there, when that other voice came in? Now, I said it was Siri at the time. Maybe it was Siri. I don't know. I, I can't tell the difference between all these voices. Um, it might have been Google. It might have been Zoom. It might have been who knows what it was. Um, but whoever it was, was listening. So Brian said, eh, probably the Russians. <laughs> maybe. Um, okay. Uh, great conversation. Brian will be back January 3rd. I believe that's the Tuesday in the uh, first week of January. Uh, so he, as well as uh, many of us, will be taking what we uh, hope is considered a well-deserved break. Um, we got some time for some end bits. You love those end bits, at least your mail suggests you do. 
Uh, so there were, the, the 2022 has been a year of record busting on a lot of different fronts. Uh, so we're going to go through some of those. And um, I should say that these are in no particular order of importance, but I, the first one that I picked up was, was quite naturally, it was about the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February caused a massive jump in energy and food costs, with the UN and Agriculture Organization's food price index hitting a historic peak in March, and the cost of gas in Europe reached a record high, and that can be blamed on uh, the Ukraine war as well. The Eurozone annual inflation climbed steadily to 10.6% in October, the biggest increase since the index began in 1997. Refugees. The war also triggered the biggest wave of refugees in Europe since the end of World War II. More than 7 million Ukrainians fled to other European countries, and a further 6.9 million were displaced internally, according to the UN refugee agency, UNHCR. North Korea fired a number of missiles into the Sea of Japan in response to large-scale joint military exercise, Uh, staged by South Korea and the United States. A particularly intense peak saw 23 missiles fired in 24 hours. And that wasn't that long ago, just on November 2nd. Now, after 70 years on the throne, Britain's longest-serving monarch, Queen Elizabeth, passed away on September 8th, aged 96. Look at that, already three months ago. some ways it feels like yesterday. Before her massive state funeral, an estimated quarter of a million people queued around the clock to view the coffin as it lay in state. Elon Musk. Well, no surprise he's made the list here. Um, it was a big year for Musk, the world's richest man whose fortune was estimated at by Forbes at close to $200 billion at the start of December. The CEO of Tesla and SpaceX added Twitter to his portfolio for $44 billion and swiftly caused controversy by firing half the staff, unbanning people who had been thrown off the platform, including Donald Trump. Just uh, today, I think he's scrapped the moderation panel. I don't know what his plan is. I know the guy's a genius, but it, I don't get it. I don't get what he's doing certainly don't agree with it. Um, Temperatures. Europe sweated through its hottest summer on record, with records tumbling in many countries, including England, where the mercury topped 40 degrees Celsius for the first time. Forest fires linked to the hottest, driest conditions also guzzled more land than ever before. Over 600,000 hectares. The art collection of Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen, which included works by Cezanne, Klimt, and Van Gogh, was sold by Christie's for $1.62 billion, the biggest amount ever for an art auction. Marilyn Monroe was a big hitter, too, with one of her photo portraits by Andy Warhol selling for $195 million, making it the most expensive 20th century artwork. You liking this? <laughs> you liking these records? Tennis Titans. When Rafael Nadal won the 
French Open for the 14th time, the Spanish ace raised his own record of Grand Slam titles to 22. That's just ahead of Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer. It was also a year of farewells with two of the sport's greatest players calling time on their glittering careers, Federer and Serena Williams, who has 23 Grand Slams to her name. The 10th album by U.S. megastar Midnight's, that's Taylor Swift, caused such a frenzy that Spotify broke down as more fans sought to listen to it over a single day than any other album. Ten of its tracks were listed in the top ten Billboard Hot 100, also a first. The Billboard Hot 100 is a staple for disc jockeys. Even I remember it from the 60s when I was a kind of DJ terrible DJ, but I was a DJ in Churchill, Manitoba. And we used to say every week waiting for the Billboard Hot 100 to come in was quite something. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you, you look to see, you know, where they all were, where the Beatles were, where the top Canadian band might be, you know, whether it was the Guess Who or whomever it may be. Um, less glorious for Swift was her topping the list for the worst private jet CO2 emission offenders among celebrities for her extensive private jet use in August, when she was awarded the unenviable prize, she had already clocked up to 170 flights in her private jet. And finally, we mentioned this when it happened a couple of weeks ago. In November, the world's population, which numbered 2.5 billion in 1950, exceeded 8 billion, according to the UN. Well, well, well. Okay, look ahead to the rest of the week. Tomorrow, it's Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. He'll be by. We'll get his thoughts on last night's by-election victory. I'm not sure it's been declared official quite yet, but it's certainly um, a wide gap. Uh, in favor of the Liberals, and we talked about this a number of times in the last couple of weeks on the importance of that by-election, as important as by-elections ever are. Um, we'll talk about that, I'm sure. Liberals uh, holding on to that seat after Pierre Polyev had, uh, you know, spent a, a fair amount of time working on that riding. Um, turnout was horrible, though, really low, really low, and I don't know what that means. They usually are low in uh, turnouts in uh, by-elections, but still, this was uh, really low. Um, so we'll talk to Bruce. I'm sure he'll have some thoughts on Elon Musk as well. And his comments about Dr. Fauci. So that's tomorrow. Uh, Thursday is your turn. So if you have some comments, and some of them have been coming in, and I'm trying to focus it around what did you think was the biggest story of the year? Right? A couple of lines should suffice in terms of naming your biggest story and perhaps the reason why you think it is the biggest story. And already there's been a variety of different answers, so that's great to hear. So uh, don't be shy. Send it in. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Ranter will be by as well. The Ranter, formerly known as Random, <laughs> uh, he'll be by. He's been asked, implored by some of you listeners, to do a rant that says nice things about something. It's Christmas. Be nice. 
Well, we'll see. We'll see whether that happens. Um, Friday, good talk, of course, with Chantelle Bear and Bruce Anderson, and and a year-end program with a difference. We're not going to go with the traditional kind of year-end, who was the best this, and who was the best that, who did the worst this, and who did the worst that. I guess there'll be a little bit of that, but we're going to try and raise it up a notch, raise it up a level in terms of the discussion. So that's uh, Friday on Good Talk, Chantel and Bruce. And both Wednesday and Friday are available also on the YouTube channel, as we've pointed out before. That's going to wrap it up for this day. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.